Abraham. I thought, oh, he's unpredictable. He'll do something. And, and I'm really nervous, and, and he'll do something, and then I won't know what to do. So I am trusting that Sam's going to stick to what we have planned. Um, but Shall I just, we well, we've heard that before. <laughs> We're just going to pray for Sam. Lord God, we do just thank you that Sam is unpredictable, but that he goes with what you have for him to say. Yeah. Lord, he trusts you, and we trust you as well, Lord. And we just give Sam to you, and we just thank you that he is here, and we just thank you that he's willing to come and share your word with each one of us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Helen. It'll be a little bit different this morning, as you've probably gathered already, when we did that bit at the beginning with the kids. We did that for a reason, because there's a particular theme that I want to concentrate on this morning. Those are all part of being in God's army. Or are you a part of God's army? Are you actually in it? I don't know. Let's have a look at this video clip. Stuart, I work as a church coordinator for Safe Families for Children. I'm Tim and I study history and English literature at university. I am Corinne and I am a wife, a mother, a friend, a daughter and a follower of Jesus Christ. I am Peter and I am a care support worker at Crossroads Care. I am Andy, I am a van driver. I am Kai, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I am Hannah, I work at Starbucks. I'm Ron, I'm an electrician. I am John, I'm a Christian, I love my team, I love my job. I am Emily and I am a I am Alistair, I am a Christian, and my professional life is helping owner-managers of small and medium-sized businesses to manage them far better so that they have better lives. Lovely opportunity to also tell them about the Lord Jesus. I am. All of us here could answer something different to that particular question. The question to you this morning is, who are you? A lot of people up there said, I am this, I am that. Different ages, different jobs. But I'll tell you something. They all, if you ask them, could have said, I am a Christian. I am 
a follower of Christ. I am someone who's put my faith and trust in Christ. I want us to look at those words this morning, I am. Allow me to introduce myself this morning. My name isn't Sam for this particular part of the service. My name's Claudius. You can call me Claude. I'm a professional soldier in the Roman army. I enlisted as soon as they take me, and I've worked my way up through the system to earn the rank of centurion. That's equal to what you might call a lieutenant in your army. My regiment was on crucifixion detail when Jesus of Nazareth was placed into custody. I was his constant companion. From the early hours of the morning, when the Jewish leaders brought him to Pilate, till the very end, and when he breathed his last breath. The Jewish leaders had all sorts of accusations about Jesus. They said he was a rebel, a criminal, and a blasphemer. They claimed he was a threat to their stability and the stability of the Roman Empire. For hours, Jesus was bounced back and forth between the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pilate. It was Pilate who finally gave the order to have Jesus executed. But, like a good politician, he did his best to exonerate himself from any responsibility. When Pilate gave the order, my men and I began preparations to include Jesus in that day's crucifixion lineup. Including Jesus, there were three men who were to be put to death that day. Crucifixion is a dirty, rotten business. I can still remember my first crucifixion. I was what you might call a private. I was newly enlisted in the army and ready to conquer the world for the sake of the Roman Empire. There was no way I could have imagined that this kind of detail would be one of my duties. My duties. By the time it was over, I was sick to my stomach. The nightmares lasted for weeks. The guilt of what I'd done made me an emotional wreck, affecting everything. My marriage, playtime with our newborn son, Claude Jr., it was awful. Our army didn't have any psychologist or psychiatrist. We had a commanding officer who basically said, it's your job, it's your job. These men are like criminals, enemies of the Roman Empire. Just do it, just do it and stop talking like a wimp. He threw a couple of colourful words my way and phrases as well. But since we're a mixed company, I won't repeat them. My commander was right though. These guys were our enemies. We blessed them with culture, civilization, order and structure. We brought them the majesty that's Rome. Yet all they could do was gripe and groan and moan and complain and look for ways to make our lives miserable. It was my job, yes, it was my job to teach these folks a lesson. And the cross was what was in store for them who opposed us. I actually started looking forward to the crucifixion. Detail in, in an odd sort of way. It was my job. It was my job to put these people in their place. It was for the good of the Roman Empire. It was for the good of those who watched these torturous executions. It reminded them to stay in their place and not to get too uppity 
And the more cruel and heartless I could be, the more likely the cross would be a deterrent to other people. By the time my men and I had taken responsibility for Jesus, I had mellowed a bit. I had associated over several dozen crucifixions. I'd been there. I was becoming rather indifferent to the whole matter. When it came to crucifixions, I thought I'd seen it all. And here's a little secret the politicians don't like hearing. As a deterrent, the cross wasn't working. In fact, the more crosses we hung, the more rebellious the people became. Like I said, the cross was dirty business. It was designed to be the most humiliating and degrading of all deaths. Roman citizens were never executed on a cross. If a Roman committed a crime punishable by death, he was beheaded. That was a more instantaneous and merciful way to die. The cross was reserved for the slaves, foreign criminals and political enemies. It was for those who were considered the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was a slow, lingering, painful way to die. Jesus must have done something pretty bad to warrant this kind of treatment. Though for the life of me, I couldn't imagine what that might be. Though strong and resolute, Jesus remained mostly humble and silent during all the court proceedings. He didn't offer any sort of defense. He didn't argue or plead for mercy. I'm a soldier. I know a little bit about courage. I can tell you, it takes a lot of courage to put up with the kinds of things that Jesus was dealing with without losing your composure. Like I said, Pilate couldn't find any legal precedent for ordering Jesus' death. Pilate told the Jewish leaders, let me have him, beaten to a pulp. Then we'll release him and be done with it. He'll no longer be a threat to anyone. The religious crowd and the Jewish leaders shouted, No! We don't want that! We don't want that! Then they pulled their trump card. It was their political gambit. This man is a threat to Caesar, they said. If you don't have him crucified, you're no friend of Caesar. They knew my boss well. He was a creature of politics with ambitions far exceeded this backwater region of Palestine. If he didn't deal swiftly with supposed threats to Caesar, his political career was over. I'm washing my hands of the entire affair, Centurion. That's what he said. Take this Jesus and crucify him. Yes, sir, I said. For the paperwork, sir, could you tell me the charge? Pilate replied, he's the king of the Jews. Put that on the cross above his head. Let anyone who looks at it realize that's what happens to kings who oppose Caesar. I have to tell you, those Jewish leaders were hopping mad when they heard about that. They wanted me to change the word and to say, he says he's the king of the Jews. But I knew better than to argue with my boss. The men in my regiment decided to have a bit of cruel fun with Jesus. After a good beating with a whip, they fashioned a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. 
Then they pretended to pay homage to him by bowing before him. With the terrible abuse Jesus was receiving, I started to wonder if Jesus would even make it to the cross. All right, you guys, I said, that's enough. That's enough, I commanded. The cross beam was tied to Jesus' back, as well as the other two criminals. Then these two men were poked and prodded to carry the beam through the city, outside the gate, and then up to the place we called Skull, right near the rubbish dump. That's where the execution would take place. The people along this way of suffering were a mixed bag. Oh, they were an odd crew. Some were trying to get their work done before sundown and the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. They seemed more annoyed than anything else. Others seemed ready to fight to get these men released. Men, men, my men had to always be on their guard. Because evidently there were people there who were friends of Jesus. There were women there along the way. Who, as you might imagine, they were weeping profusely. Others were casting jeers and insults. Still, others seemed simply amazed by the spectacle of it all. About half a mile from the place of the execution, Jesus collapsed. The beating had evidently taken its toll. He tried to get up. Despite everything he'd been through, he focused to see this through to the end. I'd really never seen anything like this. It's not like he wanted to die. Who does? It was more like he was determined to die. But the strain was too much. I ordered my men to draft some poor person from the crowd who would be forced to carry the cross the rest of the way. When we arrived at Skull Hill, I told my men to give Jesus a break and hang the other two first. Once the other men were hung, we nailed Jesus' feet and the arms to the cross. You may not know this, but when somebody dies on a cross, the actual cause of death is that they suffocate. The way they hang, the only way to breathe is to push themselves up on their feet to catch breath. Once they can no longer do this, then death is very near. Once all three were hanging on the cross, it was simply a waiting game. I think that is when I started to notice there was something special about Jesus. Shortly after being hung on the cross, the onlookers appeared. Many of these were the victims of the criminal. In the case of Jesus, it was the religious elite who had begged Pilate to sanction Jesus' death. They came with their jeers, insults, and curses, all ready to be hurled toward those on the cross. In reply, the people hanging on the cross would use their dying breath to return those insults. I'm used to that. I've been called nearly every curse word in the book. And after a while, these criminals want to make deals. And finally, they start begging for mercy. They want me to do something to expedite their death so their suffering can end. Nothing prepared me or what would happen next. Right there in the midst of all the pain, suffering, sorrow, and shame, Jesus pushed himself up and took a long breath. Then he shouted a prayer toward the heaven. Father, forgive them. He said a lot of really amazing things out here. But this is the statement that really got to me the most. Father, forgive them. 
I think that's when I really started to recognize that there was something holy, something divine about this man called Jesus. I'm a hard-bitten soldier of the Roman Empire. I hide my emotions very well. But I have to tell you that I felt a tear rolling down my cheek. In my profession, you could get to see a lot of acts of courage, bravery, and sacrifice. The men in my regiment would fight to the death for me and for one another. They were a band of brothers. But this statement by Jesus was something different. He wasn't one of my brothers. He wasn't my enemy. Yet there he was praying for me and for the rest of us who were there to officiate at his execution. Father, forgive them. What was it about this man that allowed him to pray that God would forgive those who were in the process of killing him? What was it about this man that made me feel that while he was hanging on the cross, he was actually closer to God than I had ever been my entire life? What was it about his words that so impacted my life? Father, forgive them. I wouldn't have had that kind of compassion if I were hanging in his place. When I pray for my enemies, I'm asking for the strength to kill them. It finally dawned on me in the moment that Jesus died, the sky was dark, the earth quaked, rocks split in two, and tombs were open. But that wasn't the thing that really got to me. What got to me was the realization that God was not the enemy of my enemies. In fact, God was not even the enemy of his enemies. The God of Jesus, the God whom he prayed to as father, was a loving God who turned his enemies into friends by loving them and forgiving them. This God looked at me as I was doing this terrible deed and forgive me. As I thought about that, I couldn't help but say out loud, and I didn't care who heard me. Surely, surely this was the Son of God. Very emotional, wasn't it? Very emotional to think that's what Jesus went through for you and I this morning. We saw up there an army of ordinary people. Listen, church, that's what we are. We are an army of ordinary people. But you know, we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace this morning. I wonder how many times people think that they know what it is, what it means to follow Jesus. And then through God's word and the Holy Spirit, they become more aware that what they thought was not entirely accurate. Some people think that following Jesus is only about a one-time decision that's made when it's left at the altar. Others think it's only about being baptized. Others think it's about coming to church. It's about having membership of a church. It's about doing jobs in the church. To come up, become aware of what's actually required, you only need to do one thing, and that's to follow Jesus. I know for some of us here this morning, that comes as a surprise. It may come as a shock, but that's reality. That's what we need to do. Now, every child, as they grow up, they develop, they go through different stages. They go through the asking stage when they have to know about everything. Why, why, why? Then they go through a talking stage when they just talk about everything and anything nonstop. Then they go through a stage where they say some foolish things 
things that you may wonder, are these kids mine or not? The stage usually gets around them in their teen years. Then they hit that know-it-all stage when they can't tell you anything. That's normally about 15 to 17 years of age. That's what kids do. But as they grow up, they develop. And we expect them to pass through these different stages of life. We expect them to grow up. And you know, sometimes church, I need to say this to you this morning, <laughs> we need to grow up. We need to grow up and look at the cross and look what it actually means to you as an individual and to us as a church. God expects the same from you and I. He's gracious. He's a God of mercy. And I need to tell you, people, if you don't know him, if you don't know this great friend, this man, Jesus, then, you know, you need to ask him to come into your heart, into your life this morning, I'll tell you something. He'll make you an extraordinary person. He will do something for you that no one else can do. The world can't do it, but Jesus can. I want to end with this. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not shouting I'm clean living. I'm whispering, I was lost. Now I'm found and forgiven. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't speak of this with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and I need Christ to be my guide. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and I need his strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. And I'm admitting I've failed and I need God to clean the mess. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. When I say I'm a Christian, I still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartaches. What do I do? I call upon his name. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not holier than thou. I'm just a simple sinner who's received God's good grace somehow. That invitation for you this morning, it's an open invitation to give your heart so life to Christ. Don't leave it there in your seat. Take up the challenge. Oh, it's tough. It's hard. But I'll tell you something. With Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. And there will be storms that we'll face in life. But listen, I wanted to get real this morning. Because that's what it's all about. His death was real. His resurrection was real. His change of life for you and I, it's real this morning. Take up the invitation now. You can walk out this door and say, hey, I'm a Christian this morning. I'm a Christian. I'm going to take up that offer. And I'm going to ask him to come into my heart and life. Bless you this morning. Amen.
finish with a t- time of worship this morning and um, contemplate on what Sam's sporting to us and then uh, be good to stick around and talk to us and get to know you. I'm going to finish with two songs this morning.